0: Good morning. I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text for this morning's message. You can follow along in your Bibles or um, or your apps or along with the screens um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 through 34. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame.
1: Thanks, Alicia. I'm uh, extremely excited to continue in our series called To What End, and uh, we're unpacking uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 16 uh, through this series, and so uh, as we talk through this morning, you're going to hear me refer to Paul or the Apostle Paul, for those of you that are with us for the first time, just to let you know, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, established, helped establish the church in Corinth, and uh, they've written some letters back and forth. This is arguably the second letter that Paul has written, although it is 1 Corinthians. Uh, The first one was lost to us, and so um, he's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth, addressing Things and so you may hear me refer to Paul. That's who I'm referring to, the author of, um, of First Corinthians. And so, as we continue uh, on in this series, the, this morning's message is entitled uh, "Motivations." Motivations, and we want to look a little bit at motivations as we uh, move through this longer text this morning. Uh, I, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't get very involved in social media. I know maybe some of you are like super into that, and that's great. I'm not saying it's evil or of the devil either, and maybe there's some of you in the room that are like, social media is Satan. Like, oh, that's creepy, but okay. Um, So regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, um, I engage it mostly for entertainment from time to time, and so uh, usually what will happen is I'll see like a video and I'll start laughing, and then I'll just start looking at the other videos associated, and before you know it, I'm just mindlessly laughing at something and have wasted an hour of my life that I regret welcome to the rest of the room, right? Everybody's like, I'm doing it right now while you're preaching. You know? <laughs> anyway, so uh, I, I kind of got on this uh, kick a while back. Um, I saw a, uh, a kid swinging at a pinata and at face value, it's not super entertaining, but this, uh, this parent was kind of abusive in my opinion. He was like uh, increasing the height of the pinata just before the kid swung. And so the kid just swinging around, swinging around, and then finally the inevitable happens where the kid just smacks the father, and you're kind of like, I'm happy for that, you know, like, <laughs> you kind of deserved it, buddy, and uh, so I'm kind of laughing, and then all of a sudden, the next video pops up, and it's almost, I, I don't know how social media does it, I know it's all these types of uh, algorithms and stuff, but all of a sudden, they're like, you think that's funny, watch this pinata destruction, you know, and then you're like, I love pinatas, and you're just like, well, I'd like another pinata, another pinata, I'm like, why am I watching pinatas? But I will tell you this, uh, as, you're, as you're watching them, I realized that there was a pattern, And I tend to notice patterns. It's a disease, I don't know. But I I realize that kids kind of fall into three different categories, okay? So there's the, the pinata beaters, that realize exactly what they're doing. Like they know there's candy or toys up in there. And so they just walk up to that pinata and some of them are even cheating, you know, like they're peeking under it. And they just, they know the end game and they're just striking the snot out of this pinata. Pieces are flying everywhere. They get the candy. They're the first one on top of it or the toys. And so there are these kids that get it. Like they know all about the treasures that are pinata. All right. Then there are the kids that have no idea. What the pinata is, and they've been given a stick, and for the first time in their life, they're encouraged to strike something. Right? And they're like, Are you sure? Because it's not a ball. They're like, Hit it, hit it hard. They're like, But you say not to, and they're like, No. And you know, and they all of a sudden this rage comes out of this little five year old, and they're like, You know, and they're beating this piñata, and then it happens. It busts open candy showers down or toys or whatever, um, money in some cases. you got to watch the videos. It's crazy. Like, who loads a piñata with money? I was like, how did that even make it into the yard? Did they don't have an older brother that's just like, that piñata's mine. <laughs> like, where'd the piñata go? Like, I don't know. In either case, uh, these kids hit the piñata, and they're like, What? It's an awareness for the first time. There's treasure inside of this thing and their eyes are wide open. They're screaming with delight and they run and they grab this stuff. So we've got the the kids that know exactly what the end game is, the kids that are totally surprised by what's taking place. And then there's this other group of kids where their joy is that they're allowed to beat something and they don't realize that there's anything in it. And they don't care. They're just like, I get to smack that thing? Bring it on like Donkey Kong. You know. And they're just like wailing away at this thing. They're calling their sister's name as they're beating it. You know, they're like, no, well, that's not all right. Let's enroll him in counseling now. You know? So in either case, there, there was this one kid in particular, and it had happened a couple of times with kids that fall into that category. They find the joy in the beating of the pinata and don't realize that there's something inside of it so it's like they're beating on this thing they're beating on this thing and then this one kid walks over and he goes pulls off his thing, He's like dad I'm done he's like what do you mean son you're not you're not done like you, you hit the pinata till it breaks up it's like it was fun like I like hitting it but like I'm getting tired He's like no son it's not about hitting the pinata it's about breaking it open to get what's in it he's like it was fun to hit it and he's like he's done He's like, you're really done? Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. So then he gives the stick to the older brother that realizes exactly what's happening. He walks over, lights this thing up, and all of a sudden, the other brother is just struck with despair. Like, why didn't I keep hitting the pinata? I had no idea what was inside of it. And so there's the, the kids that know exactly what's happening, the kids that are surprised at what's happening, and then the kids that kind of give up because they thought the joy was in the journey. And so I have a question for you this morning as we move through the text. Where do you find hope? Where do you find hope? Because if your hope is in the journey, you might be missing out on something. You see, we talked last week about how easy it is to place your hope in what you can see, what you can touch, and how finding hope in the things of this world leads ultimately to hopelessness. And so the message obviously kind of parallels as Paul is on this progression of thought. But the reality is that we can say that we pursue hope in Christ. In fact, maybe some of the people in this room might say, well, my hope isn't in the things of this world. I pursue uh, my hope is in Christ. And I realize that there's a a broad spectrum of people in the room, Uh, people ranging from committed Christ follower all the way uh, to the skeptic that got tricked into coming here Memorial Day weekend. They're like, I thought this was a barbecue. What are we doing? (laughs) And everybody in between. Which, by the way, if you got tricked like that, I'd love to talk to you because that's more entertaining than social media. In either case, oftentimes we will say, those of us that profess Christ, say that we find our hope in Christ. But... With wrong motivations, we find ourselves hopeless as well. How is that? Why is it? Why is it that someone that can say that their hope is in Christ can still find themselves as hopeless as those that are apart from Christ? I want to submit to you, it's because if we're honest, what we really mean is that our hope isn't really in Christ. It's that we believe God will help us in this life. And so our hope is that our life will be better as we add God to it. What we really mean is, hey God, will you get me out of this situation? Hey God, if you're real, will you assist me in this circumstance? We think things like Christianity will make me well-rounded, Like I've got my complex life and if I can just add uh, church to it or Jesus to it, I can kind of balance out this well-rounded life. Maybe as we add God to our life and we attend church enough and maybe we even give if we're super spiritual and we've kind of diluted everything into this earning and works righteousness effort, then we can say, hey, I'm entitled to something. Like, hey, God, don't you know, like, I'm part of the team here. Don't I get a little something? Like, I shouldn't have to deal with sickness. I shouldn't have to deal with disparity. I shouldn't have troubles in this life. I mean, after all, my hope is in you. And what I mean by that is, my life should be better if I have Jesus as part of it. You see, that's not placing our hope in Jesus, though, is it? It's placing our hope in our best version of what we believe life can be. So what we're doing is we're pursuing heaven on earth. I wanna tell you, Christians aren't the only ones guilty of pursuit of heaven on earth. Irreligious people and people far from God are guilty of the same. They call it the American dream, right? I want life to be easy. I want to get to a place where I am am fiscally independent, where I don't have to worry about the cares of this world. Wouldn't it be great? Oh my gosh, can't I just retire now? Couldn't, Couldn't we just, oh, if I could live on an island somewhere. You know, and we pursue heaven on earth. To what end? To what end? Like, do we think in some way that we can resolve the troubles of this life by disengaging from it? I want to submit to you that some of us think so. Like, if I could just get enough vacation, I'd never have stress again. Except for we know people that live that lifestyle, and they're just as stressed out. You see, verse 19 of this passage says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope has to transcend this life. Otherwise, we pursue the meaningless. We pursue that which rots, that which rusts, that which goes away. The American dream. And listen, we're here today to honor uh, those that have served our country. And I am thankful that we live in the greatest country on earth. I am so grateful for the people, the men and women that have laid down their life so we can have freedom. And I am not belittling America, not belittling the pursuit of freedom or anything like that. But I'm saying if we are not careful, we will place our pursuit for the American dream and our freedom above the things of God and it'll actually be a form of idolatry that will worship the easy life. You see, but God didn't promise, follow me, and I will give you retirement. <laughs> follow me, and everything will be easy. Come surrender your life to me, and you'll run through fields with lilies, with dollar bills flowing out of your pockets. Right? It didn't happen. If you look in Scripture, the disciples were homeless. (laughs) They were homeless. You're like, wait, what? (laughs) I want to re-up somewhere else. (laughs) And so he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow Follow me, I will allow you to prioritize the things that actually matter in your one and only life. You see, because that's where fulfillment comes. To pursue heaven on earth is to pursue something that can never be attained. And while we're busy pursuing it, we miss what our life should really be about. Let me say that one more time. If we pursue heaven on earth, if we pursue the ease of life, if we fall victim and into the, into the, the troth that everybody else is functioning in, we're pursuing something that can never be attained. And while we're busy pursuing it, we miss what our life should really be all about. The Corinthians were guilty of the same pursuit. In fact, they were so caught up in this life that they actually questioned whether or not the resurrection of the dead took place. And if it did take place, does it even really matter? And that's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, uh, For what it's worth, if if you don't think the resurrection of the dead happens, then you realize that that means that Christ hasn't raised from the dead, which has serious implications in your faith and salvation. But he's addressing something far deeper that I think we have to wrestle with this morning. And that's this. If you're caught up in the short game, you're ignorant to the long game. We can get so caught up with what's right in front of us, that we miss the long game. We can get so excited about the joy involved in beating a pinata that we don't realize there's something inside of it. To the point where we lay down the stick and say, that was fun. are like, no, 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 you missed the point. Like, no, it was a good time. Hit it as hard as I could. Thanks for the fun, Dad. No, but that's not what it's about. Some of us in this life, we're pursuing and finding hope and joy in the things that are only part of the journey. and We're laying down the stick and saying, hey, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, you know, not quite as fulfilling as I'd like to, to have been, but it was a good time. And I feel like it's, it's the Lord himself saying, you're missing the point. You're settling for a lesser journey. I've played uh, sports most of my life and I'm uh, coming to grips with the fact that I may be getting too old to do it now. Uh, but in most of my life, in, in all the sports that I have played, there are, there are different moments and I can hear almost different coaches' voices as I was even preparing the message saying some variation of the game's not over yet. Because we find disparity in moments as we're playing sports. Like there's this moment where, where someone just, crushes. I I was a a closer in college. Uh, I was predominantly a center fielder, but I was a closer. And I remember this one breaking ball that I hung and this guy crushed it to the point where I was like, ah, I don't know why I turned almost into the little mermaid. (laughs) "Ah." I don't know, but I was just, it was like that moment where I was in awe of this guy just destroying a ball that I pitched. And I went from being in awe to disparity, like, oh my gosh. I don't think I could ever throw the ball again. And the coach saying, hey, game's not over. He's looking at, hey, Claude, Claude, game's not over. I'm like, right, right. I wonder how far this guy will hit it. (laughs) Because you get into that, that mode of like, is this what it's about? Listen, when you're defeated by today, when you're defeated by the urgent, by the worries, by the demands of now, You're exchanging the joy of tomorrow's possibilities for the despair of today. I want to say that one more time because I want you to realize what really is in in the balance when you live with the urgent and the immediate and you lose sight of the long game. When you're defeated by today, by the urgent, by the worries, by the demands of now, you are exchanging the joy of tomorrow's possibilities for the disparity of today. We need to have a bigger perspective. But we can't because our today is so real, right? It's right in our face. This is our reality. And so how do you look beyond today? Because even in the moments of today, when you're in the midst of the issues, all you can think of is how today plays out to make tomorrow worse, right? If we continue on this track, tomorrow will be even more devastating than today. And so I'm here to tell you, it just gets worse, 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 and then you die. Thank you for coming to Center. (laughs) It's the tension of humanity. And it's why we want to pursue a better life now. It's why we want to escape. It's why we want to not engage the reality of what's before us more often than not. I'm going to skip ahead before I go back just for a second. Because I think the way Paul kind of um, concludes this, helps us have a better perspective as we move through the text. So in verse 32, he says this, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? So Paul has been through a lot. He's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's thrown in jail, he fought beasts in Ephesus. And then he says, if the dead are not raised, and then he quotes something from that day, from Corinth. He says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, If there is no hope in the future, if this really is it, if you really believe that, then just live it up. Eat, drink, because tomorrow you die and then you're gone. Futile, right? Depressing. He's saying it to, to challenge the Corinthians to say, listen, there has to be something greater that transcends your life now. And so to disengage from the reality of the resurrection is to actually walk away from the hope of tomorrow, which means we have the disparity of today to hit us in the face. Paul is clarifying that our hope is found in the resurrection, in the resurrection not only of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ followers in the future, that our hope is really in the world that follows the world we're in. There's a cross-reference here for Romans 6.4. Romans 6.4 says this, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This idea that when Christ died, We died with him, and we symbolize that through water baptism, the going under of water, and then the being raised to new life. The newness of life. The resurrection has daily perspective-changing implications. We don't think often that way. I shouldn't say that. Some of us think that way, but to a place of a different type of disparity. And if you've been in the church world for any amount of time, you've probably heard... I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Oh, my gosh. This life and all the world. Have you seen? There's this thing called social media. It's like Lucifer's in my pocket. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, come back soon. You know, and it's like you just want to huddle in this room till the resurrection. Oh, God, take us home. Take us home. We're such a hot mess and this world is so scary. Like, seriously? Seriously? Wow, I want to be a Christian. Sign me up. Your life looks awesome. Right? Because there's this extreme, right? We go to one extreme or the next. We're either saying, hey, we're going to live for today. And so if we're living for today, then all that matters is, is sports and college and money and buildings and homes and all of the stuff because it's only about today. Or it's about heaven, the great by and by. Would you rescue us, Lord? We're all scared, you know? And and God is saying, and Paul is saying, it's in between. It's living in the fullness and newness of life now with the expectation of then. That we would rearrange our hearts and our perspective. That we wouldn't fall victim to just saying, hey, you know what, this life was fun, but I didn't understand the long game. I thought it was about just this, 120 years, if we're lucky, or unlucky, depending on your perspective, how your back's doing. But if you're thinking really the 120 plus years or less years, it has implications for eternity until forever. We're living for now as if forever is not as valuable. So, verse 20, a rather small verse with significant implications, where we'll spend most of our time today, says this But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits. Firstfruits is an agricultural term that would have meant a lot to the people of that day. <clears throat> We're not quite as agricultural um, in this community, and so uh, the term may not make sense but it means uh, the first installment of a harvest to come. The first installment. So Christ is literally the first installment of a harvest to come. I won't read it today, but in Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 10 through 14, you can look it up if you want, we learn about something called the feast of first fruits. And so Paul is connecting a dot with something that is... um, found in the Old Testament that the, that the people of that day, specifically the Israelites and the Jews, it would ring true in their hearts and minds. And so I want to take us on that same journey. I want us to dig through a little bit of the connection that, that Paul is making because there are uh, deep underpinnings that we can understand theologically in just this simple statement. The feast of first fruits. So the high priest on the, uh, the first day of the week following Passover Sabbath, Now, if you're not familiar with what Passover is, I'll quickly summarize it and admittedly not do justice, but for you to understand the journey we're on. The Israelites were uh, held as slaves to the Egyptian people. And when they were slaves to the Egyptian people, um, basically Moses is sent by God to set his people free. And as Moses goes, he has interactions trying to set uh, God's people free. And a long story short, after several different things take place because Pharaoh refuses to set them free, the last thing that happens is the Pharaoh says that he's going to kill the firstborn son of every Israelite. And prior to that, God says, whatever it is that the Pharaoh speaks over you will in turn happen to the people of Egypt. And so all of a sudden, uh, Moses is struck with the reality that the angel of death is coming as judgment upon the people of Egypt. And so one of the things that God instructs Moses to do is to tell the people of Israel to go and find a sheep, a lamb, a lamb without any spot or blemish and to sacrifice that lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and lintel of their homes so that in the evening when the angel of death comes, instead of casting judgment on that home, it will pass over that house, okay? And so the lamb was slain so that the people didn't have to be. And so it's a a horrifying story of judgment being cast because of the disobedience of Pharaoh. And as we move the story forward, Pharaoh, distraught with the death of his own firstborn son, tells the Israelites to get out. And so we then see the journey of the Israelites moving through the wilderness. And like I said, I'm really summarizing a lot. But it's where the Israelites get the language for Passover, is celebrating uh, the reality that death passed over them because of God's direction, that the lamb died instead of them, Passover. So that's what is happening here, is that there's a Passover that the Israelites celebrate, and the Sabbath following that Passover, would go into what's called the Feast of Firstfruits. Right? So again, track with me, setting some ground, ground uh, um, information so that you can follow along as we see the implications of what Paul's saying. So the first day of the week following the Passover Sabbath, what would happen is the high priest would go to a pre-selected field he would go out into that field and he would, um, he would harvest and cut the grain at sunrise. Then he'd bring it to the temple. He'd bring it to the temple where it was believed that God's presence would reside. In fact, it is where God's presence would reside. It would be behind the Holy of Holies, um, a curtain ridiculously thick that the high priest could only go into one time a year as an atonement for the sins of Israel. And so he would go in with this cut grain and he would wave it. He'd wave it before the Lord as, what, as a wave offering. And then he would allow the barley to lay there as a sacrifice, as the first fruits. The first fruits that were given to the Lord. And so no one would be allowed to harvest their field until the first fruits were given to the Lord. So now we see the the beginning of the Feast of Fruits by going to chapter 5 of Joshua. We see in the first time that the Feast of Firstfruits takes place is celebrated as is the Israelites now picking up on their journey through the wilderness. And like I said, I have to do some backstory so you can understand what Paul is saying. They're going through the wilderness and as they go through the wilderness, they enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering. And as they go into the promised land, the land called Canaan. Every day as they wander through the wilderness, they're um, being directed by the Lord and manna is literally provided for them daily. And so as God provides for their food daily, they enter into Canaan and they plant crops. They plant crops there. And as they plant crops, uh, they're waiting for it to grow and God continues to provide to feed them daily. What happens is after the first year of them being in the promised land, the crops come up. And when the crops come up, the manna stops. And they go and they take the first fruits and they bring it to the Lord and they wave it before the Lord and they do it as a, as a worship before God. So the manna stopped, they worshiped the Lord with the first fruits. That was when the feast of firstfruits began. I find this interesting for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One, I think if all of a sudden, if I had literally been traveling through the desert for 40 plus years, well, those people would be 40 or less. And so as I travel through the desert, all of a sudden we get there and say, hold on a second. We just went from getting fed every day to now we have to work for it. I am angry. Anyone else angry? Like what in the world is going on? But what's interesting is the the people of Israel, their response is not anger. The temporary provision ended because of God's permanent provision. And so what do they do? When they see the provision of God to bring them into the promised land, they tithe and they worship. They take the first fruits, they tithe it to the Lord, and they literally worship God by waving it before him. We can learn so much just with that alone this morning. But something much deeper is actually happening. And it's why I had to give you some of the background for you to understand. You see, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was Passover week. And so what is literally happening is he takes his disciples into the upper room and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. And and this is a symbol of my blood that was shed. What Jesus is doing is he's letting the disciples realize that a lamb doesn't have to die anymore for their sins because he is the sinless, spotless lamb of God. That he is the ultimate eternal provision. That the lamb that allowed the Passover to take place was temporary, but he is the permanent, eternal provision for their salvation. And he's letting them know, listen, I am the Passover. I am the lamb. I lived the life that you couldn't so that your sins could be forgiven so that you can walk in the freedom that I deserve. But it goes beyond that. You see what you may not be aware of if you know that already is that the morning that Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb was the first day of the week following Passover Sabbath. Listen, Jesus is walking out of the tomb and the high priest was headed to a field to cut down a crop, not realizing that Jesus is in fact the first fruit in permanent eternal provision. That because he was resurrected, we can walk in resurrection. And if we're not careful, we'll be the high priest in that story will be consumed by the duties of today and even the spiritual duties of the day and miss out on what's really happening. Is your hope in this life or is it in the life to come? Which way are you living your one and only life? Are you living and leveraging all of your time and effort and resources towards the temporal and this plane? or Are you living for something that transcends this life. You're living for this world and its comforts. Because Paul is saying that Christ followers resurrection is guaranteed because of what Jesus did. That Jesus was the literal first fruits of the resurrection. That he is embodying the feast of first fruits as he's walking out of the tomb. And unknowingly a high priest is stuck in the religiosity of the day. Our resurrection is tied to his. He was the first fruit. So this this is what that means. It means that even death's power is temporal. We should find hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We should find hope in the life to come. Not a disparaging, like, oh, God, rescue me from here. But instead, Lord, I want to walk in the fullness of the newness of life so that I can live on mission because I realize where I'm headed, because I understand what this game is all about. I get the long game, and I'm not going to live for the short game. I realize what's in that pinata. I'm going to enjoy the journey, but I'm going to get what's inside of it. Verse 23 says, but in each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus was the firstfruits of the resurrection. And for those that find their peace and their hope and their joy in Christ, those that ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of their life will be resurrected in the same manner that Christ was. That this life is not the end. Not living for this world, but on mission in this world for the world to come. It's a, percep- it's a perception change, right? Because if we're not living for the world to come, if we're not looking forward to, to the resurrection, if we're not looking forward to the reality of what Christ will do in the future, then we'll get really wrapped up in the now. Now. And we'll say how can we bring heaven to now how can this get more comfortable how can this be easier We're like what are you what are you talking about like how do you not understand that this is a journey moving towards something so much greater that we can have the opportunity to leverage all that we are, all that God has created us to be, all that God has empowered us to be, that He's given us the gifts. Remember, the whole book of Corinthians, Paul is standing on right now, where he said, Listen, you're gifted by God and you're empowered by God to do what? To do the mission and work of what God has sent you to do. And by the way, don't settle for here. Move towards what it is that God is doing because Jesus was the first fruits. He paid for your salvation, but it goes beyond that. He's the first fruits of your resurrection. And so you don't have have to fall victim to the worries and the cares of today because your hope is in a blessed hope of tomorrow. Man, if we could just rearrange our hearts and minds, the things that, that matter right now, they just shouldn't. And if you try to do that on your own strength, you'll always fall victim to what you can see and touch and feel. Be like, well, maybe it does matter though. The only way we correct our perception, the only way we correct our hearts is to allow the truth of who Christ is to be in the forefront of our hearts and minds. To walk every day in the realization that Jesus paid the price and that he is the resurrection. And so what does it look like to be on mission in this world for the world to come? This text this morning, as I'll often say, requires something from us. You can go to, to church and be like, hey, he made me laugh a little, and then I got lost a second, but then it came back around. <laughs> and then that's it. It was just a day in a busy week. But what if it's inherently more than that? What if every time the word of God is opened, it requires something from us to rearrange, to reorient, that we'd leave this place considering the, the application and the implications into our everyday life? So, I want you to leave this place considering this question. What steps do I need to take to establish my spiritual legacy? And I say that because I think legacy is a word we can all understand. Our friends, our family, maybe even ourselves. Depending on the season of life we're in, we're considering the legacy that we will leave. I don't mean the stuff. Because oftentimes we think of legacy in terms of the things we will hand down to our children or to others. I'm talking about the spiritual implications of the life you have lived. As morbid as it may sound, if you can fast forward to the day that I hope is long off for everyone in this room, where people are gathered around your casket, what is the spiritual legacy that you will have left them? Will it be to run hard after the temporal things that they can get and gather and pile? Or will there be something profoundly spiritual, something transcending this life? What are the steps you need to take? What are the steps you need to take to establish your spiritual legacy? I want you to bow your heads for a moment just so you're not distracted by the, the band coming up as we're going to respond in worship very similar to the, the way that the Feast of first fruits was done as they come forward with your head bowed just so you're not distracted, I want you to consider what is Jesus asking you to do? What are the implications of this text in your life today? What does it look like to establish your spiritual legacy? For some of you, it might mean crossing the line of salvation. For some of you, it may mean, listen, I've been living for this one and only life and I need to surrender it. I need to surrender my life and ask Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. If it's you this morning, it's as simple as you praying in the quietness of your mind. I'm not going to embarrass anyone, and I never want to manipulate anybody. In the quietness of your mind right now, you can simply pray a prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It can be that easy. If you've prayed that prayer or if you're praying that prayer, I'd, I'd love to have discussion with you about what the next steps could be so you could continue to move forward in all that God has for you because it's not about a simple decision. It's about the implications of that decision moving forward, and we want to walk with you. But for others of us in this room, maybe that have already prayed that prayer, that have already crossed that line of faith, what's your application? What does it look like to establish a spiritual legacy? Maybe it means evaluating some relationships. The way you interact with people. Maybe it means evaluating the way you approach this world and the things of this world. Are you so enamored by the things of this world that that you chase after it, that you love this world? Not for the purpose of winning it for Christ or showing people hope, but because you've fallen victim to the cares of this world. I'm not telling you today that in order to be spiritual we all have to live in poverty or anything like that. You know the difference of the tipping point. And so are you on the wrong side of that tipping point? That's all I'm asking. Are you creating a legacy for your kids, for your friends, for your classmates to where they'll look and say, you know, they didn't, they didn't maybe leave me a lot of stuff. But wow, the, the spiritual legacy that they sowed into my life. I'm forever grateful. What needs to change? Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to convict you. For others of you in this room, you might say, I'm already living that spiritual legacy. I'm, I'm setting that up. And for you, I would ask, how do you advance that legacy? What does it look like for you to to live on mission? To not only say, my kids will understand this in the days that I'm gone, but instead to say, hey, kids, this is how we look at this world because this is what matters. Family, friends, whatever it looks like, functioning according to the truth of the gospel because it implements, I mean, because it affects every aspect of your life. I don't know what your application is this morning, but I know there's application. I know the text requires something from each and every one of us. So let's take a moment to consider that.